When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Everyone, welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Grant. And if you're joining us for the very first time, thank you so much. We're so glad that you're here to join us on this journey of discovering good music. If you like what you hear, think about liking and subscribing, maybe leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening on. If you want to get in on the conversation, go to our Facebook or Instagram page um, at Good Music Podcast. You can suggest whatever artist that you'd like to see on the podcast and you can get in on the nice musical conversation that we have over there um if you're really into good music if you consider yourself a good music connoisseur you like a good song like you like a good wine go down into the description there's a link to a patreon page and you can get exclusive access to um exclusive content and early access um to content and you can help support us so um given all that we're still glad that you're here just listening and um without any of that lucas you know what are we talking about in this episode, in this music history installment. So it is once again time for our history of music episode. We uh, started off last month uh, getting to talk about the classical period. We had talked about the symphony, which was kind of the the big instrumental musical uh, revolution of that time. But now it's time to return to opera. We had done an opera episode when we did our first one on the Baroque. It was kind of the uh, the beginning of the Baroque period was the invention of opera. And pretty much every major musical style that came after it is pretty much a some some kind of development of opera. So I'm finding out more and more as I research this that opera is probably the most important style of music in history wow so it's it's it has been far more important than i initially uh realized and so this is actually going to be a bit of a two-parter this is going to be one of two episodes that we're going to dedicate to classical opera there's a reason for it i'll go into kind of more uh detail here in a minute but not only are we going to be talking about opera but these Two episodes are also going to be all about Mr. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Wow. So he he not only gets two episodes, but two episodes of a particular type of music. Yes. Um, The two operas of his that we're going to talk about are considered two of the best operas ever written, period. Wow. 
And um, I, I had briefly touched on this in our symphony episode, but um, the thing that that Mozart is most celebrated for and the thing that everyone considered that he was the best at was opera. Most people, when they think of Mozart, they think of, you know, his symphonies or his piano pieces, his concertos, his sonatas, like when when you say think of Mozart, everyone thinks of instrumental music with him. Yeah, just because that's kind of that's the music of his that's like kind of gone on to be popular in pop culture. Mm-hmm. But you talk to the people that know and study and appreciate classical music, they'll all say that opera was where he truly reigned supreme, and that's also where he reigned supreme during his lifetime. Yeah, that's that's what I expected from what you had mentioned previously so is there like a reason why that is like did he was he partial towards opera or did it just happen to be he was better um i wouldn't i mean opera is a such a difficult and monumental thing to write for anyway and so if you can write a really good opera it's gonna inevitably transcend anything else you do unless you are writing the symphonies on the level that Beethoven is, where each one is this, you know, monument shifting moment in music. Right. Um, you know, Mozart wrote incredible symphonies, but you know, to to outweigh the significance of a truly great opera, I mean, that's like that's four hours of music that is burdened upon your shoulders. Mm, yeah. And and also opera still at this point was the most popular and important style of music in the world. We talked about how instrumental music became more popular and had increased its stature since the Baroque period, but it still didn't quite outclass opera. Mm-hmm. It really wouldn't be till the Romantic period that while opera was still considered important, um, it would inevitably kind of lose the edge against instrumental music so he would have had to liked writing opera to write four hours of music yes uh he loved opera it's what it's what he felt like that he was the best at and it's what he felt like was the thing that was the most worthy of a challenge yeah yeah four hours of music like writing a quadruple album yeah it's it is no joke it's it's one of the toughest things that any composer in any era could attempt to do because it's just you're not only writing all the music but you got to write all the vocals as well you're not writing the words usually um you'll have someone that will give you a libretto or a um a a text a story but i mean pretty much that's all you get and it is the uh um, it is the composer's job to turn that story and figure out what kind of music do I use for this. And you also got to remember that this is this is not an age where you can, you know, you can't record your music. You can't record ideas on a little tape recorder or on a computer. You can't um, Google, um, you know, what other people are doing. Like, it truly had to come from within themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's a good point. And 
So it was it was a massive thing to accomplish. There were a lot of opera writers out there, but during the classical period, there were a lot of mediocre operas written, but it was still the popular thing to do. And the thing that was also very important about the classical period was that um, opera became something that was a a middle-class enjoyment. Oh. Opera was not just for the uh, for the the nobility and the aristocracy. Not, not although like usually now. usually those are the people that went to the premiere of an opera. Mm-hmm. It was very common that whoever was the king or the emperor of that particular area would be their opening night, hmm. and all of the all of the important people. In either the uh, in either the nobility or the music scene would be there that first night, but then after that, if the if they say, "Wow, this is a great opera," then they allow for a continuancy for a certain amount of time for the rest of the normal people to come in and see it. So um, it's not like it is now, where we don't like we don't go to operas as normal, you know middle-class people no it's kind of endured as only the 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 fancy schmancy people with Mm -hmm. their monocles and those little uh miniature binoculars those the people that are rich or pretentious it seems like that's all for show though yeah nowadays yeah i mean you're just you're not gonna find like if you're a normal person you say i'm gonna go see an opera people are gonna look at you funny yeah I mean, a big reason why is just because of the fact that, you know, the people that were watching opera back in that time understood everything that was being sung. It was in their language. Oh, good point. It's like a musical. Yeah. When when people go to an opera now, you've got to do some work beforehand. You got to read the translation. You got to know because otherwise you're going to have no idea what's happening. Yeah. It's just going to it's just going to be people singing sounds. Yeah. The, the think of back then the way that we would go to a musical. Good point. You know, it's it's not something that people uh would think is weird if you were to say, "Hey, I went to go see a musical. I I went to go see Wicked. I went to go see Hamilton. I went to go see, you know, Phantom of the Opera." Like, you know, it's it's something that when you go, you can follow what's happening because the whole point of opera is to uh, is to tell a story. the The music still, uh, really, Mozart's kind of the one that started to change this, but the music was still not completely the focus of opera. It was a marriage of theater and opera, but the theater was what came first. And so when people go to operas, they're not going to go, I want to hear all the music, although that's something that they look forward to. The most important thing was I can't wait to see what story they're going to tell. Mm-hmm. It just happened to be a story entirely told through music. That's that's a perfect analogy to the, the way we go see musicals today. Mm-hmm. So is the only difference that now we have the um, – the classical spin on it, the rather uh, palatable music. 
I mean, I mean, we still had palatable music in Orfeo, but sure. yes, a, a much stronger emphasis is put on the music. So let's talk about what happened to opera during the Baroque period. Because, okay. I mean, we talked about Orfeo, but that was at the very beginning of the Baroque period. That was still about 150 years of opera that we didn't even talk about. Well, and we there's talk about Handel's Messiah. That's not an opera, though. Oh, that's, that's right. An that's oratorio. oratorio. That's true. Opera was a bit of a strange thing during the Baroque periods. Depending on what source you look at, some people will say it was the golden age of opera, and other people will say it was the dark age of opera. Hmm. Um, yep. Opera surged in popularity during the Baroque period. It easily became the most popular form of music. And so much so that they were cranking out operas left and right. Think of it like the movie industry. Think of the the sheer number of just mediocre to bad movies that are made quickly on the fly and are just like it's let's just let's just try and appeal to as big of an audience as we can and it doesn't matter if it's artistically uh rich or not you know netflix movies yeah and then also think of the really really high budget cgi laden action movies that are spectacle over substance we have a lot of those those are nice Sometimes yeah. you just sometimes you just want a comic book movie. Uh-huh. And I mean occasionally you get those kind of movies that do have lots of substance. That's 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 the kind of thing that you would get with a Mozart opera is something like uh The Dark Knight that is entertaining, exciting, has lots of visual exciting things to look at, but also at the same time is a deeply well-made movie. Yeah, good story. A good story, well acted, well written. Um, so it's it's kind of like it's it's got everything. It checks all the boxes. So you mentioned that the operas, the classical opera, they wouldn't write their own story. They would have someone else's story. Like how would they go find that? Would the composer find the story? Um, or... Usually, it's it depends. Sometimes if you've got. Um, if you've got a very significant composer, typically they'll have librettos sent to them. Like, please, please r turn my text into an opera. Yeah. <laughs> Other times the composer will find a libretto and go, oh my gosh, I've got to make an opera of this somehow. Mm. And they'll, and if they get commissioned for an opera, they'll go, perfect. I've already know exactly what I'm going to do. Um, did like, those ever turn into symbiotic relationships like that John situation or was that yeah um, in fact Mozart had a librettist that he uh, partnered with for a little while oh, wow. um, they, on they only did three together but that was a unprecedented amount back in the time that's a lot of music it's a lot of yeah. stories and a lot of music I think that's that's pretty significant mm -hmm. um, he was not the librettist that he paired with wasn't the one that did the one we're going to talk about in this episode, but it will be the one that we'll talk about in the next classical opera episode. Ooh, foreshadowing. Um, but there are also people that were famous as librettists, and so composers would come to them. 
um, there were people in the Baroque period that I was like, that was what they were known for was writing librettos. And Mm -hmm. because of the fact that you didn't have the internet or even really the ability to travel quite efficiently, if a really strong libretto came out, it would be common for it to be adapted by 50 different people all over Europe. (laughs) And so they would take the same text and you would have different music to it. A different composer would go, Oh, I'm going to do this. And it was, it was not considered like copying because it was just like, you really didn't know what the other composer was doing. You kind of only knew unless you were one of the world famous composers. And even then, not every composer is going to be able to hear it. Operas didn't play for that long because it was like, okay, let's get on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And so, and I mean, obviously there weren't audio audio recordings where they could go, oh, man, I'm, I really missed Mozart's last opera. I wasn't able to get there. I want, I'm just going to listen to it later. If you weren't there, you have no way of knowing how it sounded unless much further down the line you were able to get a transcription of the sheet music. And even then, you know, that's only what it looks like on paper. It can sound completely different once you start playing it. Mm-hmm. So it was it was not uncommon to have a strong libretto being uh, adapted constantly at the same time and so you would have these librettists i was just like that's what they were known for mm-hmm. they were just they were people that when they come out with a with a text everyone snatches up a version of it and starts writing their own music to it that's crazy there's there's no real analogy to that now no because that doesn't really happen because again information is so easily shared and so easily viewed that you can immediately spot when something is similar to something else. Right. Right. And of course, copyright wasn't a thing. Nope. Yeah. You know, we hadn't even invented the idea of intellectual property. Well, maybe intellectual property, but not copyright. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't quote us on that. It's possible that it could, but not to my knowledge. Okay. So, disclaimer there and again i wouldn't say that they were stealing the text it was the whole point of a libretto or a librettist putting out something like that is to get people to to compose for it because you know that if an if an opera was composed on your text you did get a share of that money because it was it was your work that was being used and I guess there was never any fraud in that case. Where anybody... oh, I'm, I mean, there probably was because again, it was it was probably not easy to keep track of all of that. But I w- I would say that definitely there was an attempt. Yeah, they didn't just go. Oh well, you wrote it; it's out there now. You don't have any ownership of it. Wow. But I can imagine that it was not easy to to really know what where all it was being used. Right. right. So, yeah, Baroque opera, it was it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. We'll put it that way. Oh, uh, now we're going into the Romantic era. <laughs> well, no, no, not really. I mean, that would that would be uh, or the setting of that story would be classical. OK, OK, well, I can't I don't know exactly when it was written. 
but I don't either. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought it was early romantic. Anyway, let's. The French Revolution would have been smack dab in the middle of the classical period. Before we talk too much about the librettists' ideas and stuff like that, um, and the whole classical opera, uh, let's switch gears talk about the main man of this episode mozart mozart yes so again i kind of wanted to uh flip convention on its head you would think that if we're going to spend special time on mozart in the classical period we'd be talking about his sonatas his symphonies his concertos his quartets his chamber music but we're going to be talking about his operas because really when you look at it that's what has become his towering achievement which is so weird because we all know Ina Klein and Nacht music you know mm-hmm. I mean are, and... there, are there any opera main themes that have made it into um, the mainstream I would yeah. say so oh no I wouldn't say any that are in um, that are in this opera this one's kind of more of a, a music buffs opera mm-hmm um, the next one, though, is going to have an aria in it that I have a feeling you're going to recognize. Because I recognized it when I heard it. I was just like, what? This melody comes from this? Is it the, is it the Looney Tunes opera? Um, kind of. Oh, okay. Yes and no. I know, I know what you're thinking of, and you're halfway right. Okay. But I won't spoil that yet. Okay. Um... So there is a lot of myth about Mozart that isn't completely true. And that's one of the most interesting things that I found as I, um, as I started to learn about Mozart himself. Um, I mean, you have, you have all of the legends you have. If, have you ever seen the movie Amadeus? No. I would highly recommend it because it's, it's one of the best ways to get a, a pretty good snapshot of just what the classical period was like. Okay. And it's just a really well-made movie. One best picture when it came out. Okay. Um, but there is a lot of liberty taken in the, of those liberties that were taken are from the myths of Mozart. Now, to a certain extent, some of them are true. He was a child prodigy. He was, by the time he was six, seven years old, he was, outplaying a lot of the um a lot of the seasoned professionals going out on on tour pretty much um carted around by his father and just taken to all the dignitaries and just going hey look what my kid can do did he enjoy that uh yeah i mean music is what he loved the most but it definitely came with its hardships um he was sick most of his childhood and you have to wonder if a lot of that is because of the harsh living conditions of traveling in the 1700s mm, yeah good point so i mean that there that's probably a good reason a lot of his childhood illnesses probably made him susceptible to dying at an early age at 35 but um you know, the thing about, like, he heard a pig squeal and, and knew the exact tone of the squeal, that's one of those, you know, that's one of those legends. Kind of like the George Washington chopped down a cherry tree and then said, I cannot tell a lie. That didn't happen. 
that's just one of those things that it's it's a cool little anecdote. Um, he wasn't the he wasn't the insane wild madman that myth likes to portray him as. He was a an oddball, someone with a colorful vocabulary, and someone that um, didn't like to play by the rules, but not to the extent that has been patterned for him. He was not buried in an unmarked grave. That's another myth that um, has been perpetuated. He didn't die in poverty. He did go through a period of poverty, but he didn't die in poverty, as the legend likes to also perpetuate. And uh, he did not hate Antonio Salieri, which, it, yeah, that's that's one of the. And if you watch the movie Amadeus, you'll understand. Like Salieri has kind of become like a uh, a code word for villain in popular culture. If someone is a Salieri, then that means that someone is your arch nemesis that is pretending to be your friend. Huh. Salieri has gotten a rough treatment in history because of his association with Mozart and specifically being Mozart's enemy. But that was not true. They were they were good friends. I wouldn't say they were close friends, but they did not harbor ill will towards each other in real I, life. I feel like there are better analogies for that. I mean, like Caesar and Brutus, you know? Strange that that one was the, was the winning... Analogy. I mean, I wouldn't say it's the winning, but it's it's a commonly used um, analogy. Okay. Yeah, because I had never heard of it, so I just I was just going along with what you were saying. I don't know a lot about the lingo that the kids use these days. <laughs> watch, go watch Amadeus again. Okay. Don't don't necessarily watch it to get an accurate um, portrayal of Mozart's life to get all the get all the myths, but. Again, it does a very good job of capturing the culture. Obviously, you get to see a lot of the music being performed, including a lot of the operas. And so you kind of get a good idea of how the how the system worked, um, what it looked like, and um, and just getting to be immersed in that music as they're playing it, as they're talking about writing it, and it is very accurate in that sense. But of course, it's been dramatized to make for a good story. Make for a good movie. Yeah, I feel like the buried in an unmarked grave one is a pretty easy one to disprove. Just like take a picture of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, but you had mentioned that he's not the madman that everybody thought he was from the myth. So what's the myth? The myth was that he was the equivalent to a coked out crazed rock star from the 70s. Oh, he like uh, always on some substance, or just someone that was constantly um, betting every woman that he could get his hands on, and being a huge on a huge ego trip at all times. Mm -hmm. Someone that that didn't know how to how to uh, interact in a social setting. Someone that. Um, was this was this tortured genius that nothing else matters except for my work? No, um, that's true. It is true, but not to the hyperbole that is perpetuated these days. Okay. Yes, to a certain extent, he was a tortured genius. Yes, to a certain extent, he was a wild party man. 
but the way that everyone tends to like to portray him, it's as this like out of control caricature, like he's this larger than life figure. He didn't stand out in his way of going about things. No. I mean, again, he did for his time, but you also have to think about the time. Everyone was quite conservative that time. So to be a wild party man of that time does not compare to being a wild party man of this time. Was was he wild on stage? No. He was always composed. He always... He understood that his times. Again, he was not really a revolutionary, not in the way that Beethoven was. Beethoven was someone that actively and willfully challenged the culture around him and the music around him. Mozart didn't necessarily do that. He was someone that kind of like Bach. Kind of like Bach. He was like, I'm going to play by the rules, but I'm also going to do it better than anyone else ever has. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do something that's so out of left field that you're gonna be like, what the heck just happened? I'm gonna do what you expect, but not in the way that you expect. There's gonna be enough easy melodies and um normal musical practices for the normal person to hear and go, Oh, that was pleasant. I liked that. But also enough detail and enough subtlety that even the most advanced musical student would go oh my gosh i cannot believe that he just did that that's how some of the best music has been written Mm -hmm. he was he was not a prog writer that's like i have to break every musical boundary that exists right he the way that i like to view the difference say between mozart and beethoven is the difference between paul mccartney and john lennon Paul McCartney. Beatles listeners, that makes sense. But to me, you know. We'll correct that as time goes on. (laughs) Uh, Paul McCartney, his writing style has always been about being a pop writer first. He, He always was really creative with how he did it. But he was never the kind of person that was going to write something avant garde. And go, I'm going to just like mess with people's brains. Instead, he's going to go, how do I make something really interesting and unique, but still easily approachable? But maybe with a technique that people go, huh, I hadn't thought of doing it that way before. That's true. It's still kind of, it's still new and fresh. John Lennon, however, was very much a, the art comes first. My personal expression comes first. I'm the, he was the tortured artist that you know was you know was gonna work against the system to rebuild something completely new and that's really more what beethoven was Hmm. a a rebel Hmm. paul mccartney obviously was somewhat of a rebel he was part of one of the biggest musical movements in history to do that requires you to kind of work against the grain And Mozart certainly also did during his time. But like McCartney, Mozart knew how to play the game. He understood that if he got too out there, he was going to lose the thing that made him the most money, which was appealing to the modern audience. Well, so you're making it sound like Mozart doesn't have any personal expression in his music. Oh, but he absolutely, and that's the beauty of Mozart. 
he made music that only sounds like Mozart, yet at the same time is so readily accessible to anyone that wants to approach him. Hmm. It's that's one of the actually the most difficult things that you can possibly accomplish as a an artist is to make your music meaningful and deep with lots of layers, yet at the same time to take the normal person that knows nothing about music and have them go, wow, that I liked that. That was nice. If Man. you can do both of those, that is, in my opinion, that's the ultimate artist right there. That's someone that you got to watch out for because they can, they can do both equally. If you can satisfy both of those camps, then bravo. Are there any of, uh, of those artists today that, you, that are on your radar? Um, as far as like that are modern to this day. Yeah. I mean, I guess not. I don't think to the level that you can place them as a, they're one of the great geniuses. I think that, I think that Paul McCartney fits into that mold. I think that Stevie wonder fills that mold. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that Elton John fits in that mold. I think Freddie Mercury fits in that mold of just people that wrote songs that are endlessly dissected and discussed, yet you can listen to it once and feel the complete impact of what it was trying to say. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the general audience is familiar with these names and musicians just absolutely adore them. And that's the way it is with Mozart. I mean, the general audience is familiar with the name Wolfgang Appendeus Mozart. And you have been referencing throughout this episode that there are some music uh, snobs, for lack of a better term, who are just all over his stuff. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, that's, that that's crazy. Yeah, so that's... That's it's it's kind of a hard thing to describe and to quantify, but that's really who Mozart was. So, did he bring and, anything new to the opera, or did so, he just do it the best, like everything else? Remember, like I said earlier, that the words and the theater of opera was still considered the more important thing. Mm -hmm. And what Mozart did is he put the music on equal, if not greater. Uh, footing than the words and the music, or the words in the theater. He okay. he slaved to make sure that the music was so good that that was going to be the thing that people talk about. It's the reason why he is often considered to be the first truly great opera writer. How how is that not the convention? I mean, think about it. Like if you're if you're putting in four hours of music, how are you not going to try to make it the best you can? I mean, you're already putting four hours because, of your... Because it's also really difficult. I'm sure there were people that tried to, and they just didn't have the ability. Oh, that's a good point. I mean, that's the reason why you're considered one of the great composers if you can write great opera. Because it's really hard. <laughs> you have to keep the people's attention for a very long period of time and the words can only do that so much if the music stinks then then it's gonna not make the opera very good 
though it's not necessarily he was the first one to want to do that. He was the first one to pull it off. Yes. Ah. Now there were there were other good opera composers before him, but Mozart took it to a new level. A new level. <laughs> um, so really, Mozart's great opera writing period started in the 1780s. He did write operas before then, but he was still growing as a composer. And the opera that we're going to talk about in this episode, E. Domineo, is yes. kind of considered to be like his first opera masterpiece. Ah, so this is early in his career. How old was he? Um, so this came out in 81. He was born in 55. So he was 26. So actually wasn't Remember, he died at 35, so I yeah. wouldn't say this was at all early in his career. He composed his first opera when he was 12. Okay. Well, he's had quite a bit of time to refine it. Yes. And he's still 26, creating a, a masterpiece that will last for hundreds of years. Here we are talking about it. That's the, quite impressive. The thing that uh, I heard someone say, and this actually helps to give a lot better perspective, whatever age that Mozart was when he wrote something – Add 20 years, and that's about the normal age that any other great genius would have written it. <laughs> so we say that he was 26. Actually, imagine that he was 46. Because it's the quality of an opera that one of the all-time greats would have written at 46. He was younger than me when he wrote this opera. Gosh darn it. Come on, Lucas, get on it. I know. Where's where's that opera? We gotta have that special edition Good Music Podcast episode where I we know. talk about your opera. I'll get on that. <laughs> um, so the other thing we need to talk about is um, the types of operas. And this is the reason why I'm going to be doing two different episodes on classical Mozart opera. Oh. So this opera, E. Domineo, that we're going to talk about is called an opera seria. A serious opera? A serious opera, exactly. Now, that isn't the only thing that makes this opera what it is. It's not just that it's serious or what we would call the difference between a drama and a comedy. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just that it's dramatic. All operas, to a certain extent, are dramatic. Right. But you're going to find really no lightheartedness at all in an opera seria. Also... These operas are going to pretty much exclusively, the main characters are going to be kings, queens, princes, princesses, mythical figures, or gods. Huh. Think of, think of Lorfeo. Yeah. The characters in there were demigods. Yeah. They weren't normal people. They weren't your average person that you would find walking down the street. We don't have anything like that anymore. I mean, it would be the equivalent of the historical epic. You know, if we were to go see a movie, a, a movie about Cleopatra or um, or Caesar Augustus or Genghis Khan or someone that is of legendary status. If we were to go see a movie about Hercules or, you know, those kinds of things, that's that would be the equivalent of that. So you're not gonna you're not gonna have characters that are necessarily relatable. 
in the sense of like, oh man, I was in that situation just last week. Yeah. It's going to be more about celebrating the great antiquity of old. That's the other thing. You're not going to, you're not going to have modern Kings, modern Queens. It's all going to be like ancient Greece, ancient Rome, that time period. So, and that was, that was really a focus of classical art in general. It was about trying to fully capture what they felt like the Greeks and the Romans did. Really kind of a, a picking up where we left off with the Renaissance. Baroque didn't really focus on that as much. Well, that's, that's kind of strange that we're talking about these kings and queens and gods and demigods because uh, you mentioned that this was, I guess, uh, better received by the common people. And I believe a big deal of that has to be with the music. Oh, right. Because the music, and, and again, that's a, that was a thing of classical, but it was the thing that Mozart was so good at, was mm-hmm. to, he was such still good at writing hooks. I would, I would, again, only compare, say, John Lennon and Paul McCartney as people that were better hook writers than Mozart. Wow. To say they're better to... than Mozart, I don't know. He, I'm, I'm only saying that it's the only people that could even be comparable. Okay, you're you're talking a, you're talking a good game. I am. So, um, so E. Domineo is a opera seria. Right. Next time we're going to talk about something called opera buffa, which is the comic opera. Buffa. But I won't get into too much detail because that's what that episode is going to be for. And so, we'll talk about one of his opera buffas. So now, why why do we have such a serious opera? I mean, we talked about in the last episode how the classical music is very simple and very um, ooh, optimistic, right? Because, because of the, opera because of the turmoil in the world, right? Opera seria was the main form of opera during the Baroque period. So by the time that Mozart really came into writing opera. The classical period was really still in its first stages. And so it was still the preferred version of opera about the 1770s, early 1780s. But, and this is one of the things that Mozart also accomplished, is that he started to write opera buffas. And his opera buffas, especially in the late 1780s, are considered like the point to where people started to prefer them over the opera series. They existed before. Yes, they did exist before, but they were far outweighed in popularity by the opera series, just because that was just what was the norm of that time. It's what existed before. It wasn't necessarily what made sense for the culture. It made sense, I would say, for baroque culture but because classical culture yeah okay but the opera especially the whole point of the classical period is um is the enlightenment and revolution and the um the 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 championing of the common man yeah and so once you know you think about you know, at by the time you get to the late 1780s, the American Revolution has ended. The French Revolution is is either ended or is going on, and so you have kind of this now this rejection of 
of monarchies and of um, of people and on high controlling with impunity what the the normal people below do. And so when you start having these operas that are concentrating on normal everyday heroes, then that starts to become more and more appealing to people to go see operas about. So, but but the opera seria never moved to that. No, it was because just, overtaken by a its its comedic counterpart. Yes. Again, huh. now now again, comedic is not going to be a completely accurate because again there's still going to be a, an immense amount of drama in a in an opera buffa but there is going to be some lightheartedness in it don't think of it as like a in an opera buffa you're going to be like rolling a, in the aisles crying because you're laughing so hard oh, well it's got the name buffa you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> just just yeah don't when we talk about the the one in the in the next music history episode, don't expect there to be like slapstick humor and puns and all this, you know, it's not going to be, you know, the three stooges of opera. Okay. So, but we're going to talk, we're talking about opera serio for this episode. Right, so are. that's, that's what, that's what we're going to be uh, evaluating. Um, real quick, I'll run through what Idomeneo is about. Yes, I'll kind of course. give a I'll give a brief overview, and then when we get into the songs, that'll be my opportunity to kind of go into some more detail about what's going on scene by scene. Right. Although I won't go scene by scene because there's a lot of scenes. Oh, there's one other thing I need to mention, and that's the invention of the aria. Oh. Okay. That was one of the things that was invented during the Baroque period that really came into its own in the classical period. So what is that? An aria is a solo piece that is that is like a spotlight uh, performance by a singer in the opera. An aria, there's, there's usually two uh, main moments in an opera. There's an aria, and there's a recitative. And I'm going to be using those terms quite a bit. A recitative, think of that as the exposition scenes. Recitative is, is less concerned about the musicality of a moment. And it's more concerned about we got to talk about the things that are going to move the plot forward. Mm-hmm. Recitatives tend, and this is another thing that Mozart really changed, was that normally recitatives are not very interesting musically it's more emphasis on these are the words and oh yeah we should probably figure out how to modulate to the next key for the aria Mm -hmm. the aria is structured much more like a song Mm. think of like uh think of like in a in a musical in musicals typically not everything is sung you'll have the speaking moments then you'll have the big musical numbers Think of the speaking parts as the recitatives. It's right. there because we gotta have some way to move the plot forward. But everything, everything is sung. Yes, in in opera, recitative is sung, but they tend to be a bit more like rambly sounding. The arias, those are kind of like the big musical moments of the opera. An aria always features one vocalist. 
So you're not going to have any duets or trios or choruses. Uh, those are actually their own specific things. So like like I said, the the two main parts are recitative and aria, but you'll also have duets, trios, quartets, all the different multiples, and then choruses if it's a large group of people singing. And the instruments. Yes, but those are quite rare. Oh. You usually have an overture. Sometimes you'll have an intermezzo, which is a which is like an interlude, but um, Idomeneo only has one overture and one intermezzo. So the aria is like a is like this introspective soliloquy like. Yes, thing. the uh, the aria does not do anything to move the plot forward. Instead, it is the time where a character shows what they're feeling on the inside. Think of time as stopping when an aria is going on. Interesting. So when when someone is performing an aria, you don't imagine that the other characters on stage are hearing what they're saying. It's it's a private moment between the singer and the audience. Okay. And so what are considered the main roles in an opera are determined by if you get an aria or not. Because <laughs> only the important characters are going to get to have arias. Oh, there's plenty. Yes, like you're gonna you're gonna have. Usually, the formula is recitative, aria, recitative, aria, recitative, and the, and then just back and forth. Okay. But what Mozart was really good at is that he would break that mold and go, "I'm going to do an aria, and then go straight into a duet, and then after that." We're going to go to a recitative, but then we're going to go to a chorus, and then we're going to do an aria. And so he he made it to where it was not as predictable on the structure of what was going to happen. That's nice. Because that was one of the things in Baroque opera that people, the critics that say that it was the dark age of opera, were saying it was just like, it's so formulaic. You know exactly when the aria is coming. You know exactly when the recitative is coming. You know exactly who's going to do it. It was it was it was so telegraphed that it became uninteresting, and Mozart breathed some new life into it and was just like, "Okay, we're going to mix things up a little bit. Just stir the pot a little bit, make some do, more good music. Do what's going to be natural to the story and what's going to be natural for the music, rather than it has to be this, then this, then this." Nice, I like that. A nice proper flow of an album. Mm-hmm. So, E. Domineo yes. takes place um, right after the Trojan War. So this is this is ancient Greece. So right there and then that uh, backs up what an opera seria is all about, antiquity. Mm-hmm. E. Domineo is the king of Crete. So we have a king as our main character we have we have essentially four main characters we have Idomeneo we have his son Idamante who is the prince we have Elia who is the captured daughter of the Trojans she's the she's the princess of Troy and uh, she has been taken prisoner and ends up falling in love with Idamante and Idamante with her and then we have Electra, who is also a prisoner of the war, but from Argos. She has also fallen in love with Edamonte, but Edamonte does not love her back. 
It's a love triangle. Aww. And Electra is quite insane. She she gets a lot of the really juicy moments in uh in the opera because she gets kind of go a little unhinged. So it really is a soap opera. Yes, that's the reason why they call it that. Oh wow. Okay, well there you go. Some nice etymology there. Uh-huh. So, um the story goes that um Idomeneo is on his way back from Troy. He has been gone on in this war so long that when he left, his son was just a child, a baby. And so um, they really have no idea of who they look like. They, they're, they've been absent from each other's lives. And on his way back from in victory, he sends ahead Elia as a, as a captured prisoner and uh, she falls in love with Edamante. Edamante openly falls in love with her, but Elia does not uh, expose her true feelings because she's conflicted. Because on the one hand, she has uh, become infatuated by him, but also his father's army completely destroyed her entire civilization and people. So she's kind of like... Is that? There's what? There is that small aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's just like, do I, do I honor my people that have died, or do I follow my heart that says I really like this guy? So that's kind of like her main conflict throughout the opera. Is this? I I love him, but I don't want to tell him. Should I love him? Is this the right thing to do? Am I disgracing my heritage by doing this? I don't know. I don't know what to do. While Edamante is relentlessly pursuing her and is confused why she won't reciprocate his affections. And saying, like, if I can't have you, then I'd rather be dead. Wow. Okay. Meanwhile, Electra is so furiously jealous of him that she would go to any means necessary to win his heart, even entertaining thoughts of murdering Elia, although she never like actually conspires, but in her arias, she is so filled with rage against Elia that she would even try to steal away her Edamante that she goes into these fits of rage. Wow. Wow. Very, so wow. So how does the dad play into all of it? Like so, on the way home from Troy, his ship gets caught in a horrible storm, and of course, the the Grecian god of the seas is Neptune. So he prays to Neptune and says, "If you will spare my life, then the first person that I meet whenever I get onto shore, I will offer up as a sacrifice for you." Oh no. So, of course, who do you think is the first person that he's going to find when he gets on the shore? The sun. The sun. And, of course, he doesn't recognize him yet. So they have a little conversation, and then he finally realizes, oh, crap, this is my son. And when Edamante realizes it's his father, he's like, oh, yes, Dad, you're home. I'm so excited to see you. And 
Idomeneo runs away in terror. And Idamonte has another thing to be really sad about. Idamonte is kind of like our, our really sad character. He's just like, Dad, why don't you love me? Why aren't you excited to see me? And Idomeneo's like, oh, no, I've made a huge mistake. Of course it would be my son that I would have to offer up as a sacrifice. So Idomeneo comes up with a really terrible idea, which is if Idomonte is not in the city, then Neptune can't find him. So I'm going to put him on a boat and sail him far away so Neptune can't find him. Yeah, put him on the sea so the god of the sea won't be able to find him. Yeah, it's a really terrible idea. So he doesn't tell Idamante why he's sending him away. He just says, hurry, get on a boat. He even goes as far to say, you need to go do A, B, and C so that way you can be worthy of my affection. Wow. And Idamante's just like, I don't understand this. I don't know why you're sending me away, but you're my father. I want to make you happy. I'll do this. Also, during this period, because he's feeling guilty, he finds out that Edamonte is in love with Elia. And that he also deduces that Elia secretly does love him back. And he, this is making him feel even more guilty because it's just like, not only am I going to kill my son, but he seems like he has this great future ahead with this lady. I'm going to put Electra on the ship with him. So that way, I don't kill both of them. Now, when Electra finds out about this, she gets really excited because she's just like, yes, I'm going to be on a boat all by myself with Edamonte. This is going to be our chance for him to forget about Elia and to fall in love with me instead. Sounds like a win. Yeah. She's the only one that's like really psyched about this plan. <laughs> yeah. So they go to get on the boat, but before they can even get out of the harbor, a huge storm breaks loose and a giant sea monster comes out of the ocean to try and kill everyone on board. Right. As 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 it does. Yeah. And and that's when Idomeneo is just like, crap, I'm not getting out of this one. And so he begs to Pluto, or not to Pluto, to Neptune, to call off the storm. That he's just like, okay, I'm not going to send him away. Just give me some time. I promise I'll kill him. But and he's really just trying to buy himself some time. So Edamonte returns back to Elia, and that's the moment when they finally confess their love for each other. But guess who watches them confess their love for each other? Electra. Electra. So she runs and gets Idomeneo and says, look, your son is consorting with the princess of the people you just uh, destroyed. This is, this is terrible. How could you disgrace your country by letting him fall in love with the enemy? Mm -hmm. And at that point, Idomonte finally stands up to his father and says, Dad, what's going on? Why was there a giant sea monster that tried to kill us when we got on the ship? Why are you avoiding me? What is going on? Tell me the truth now. And Idomeneo 
finally confesses and says, look, I made a terrible decision. I said that I would sacrifice you to save my own life. I realize now how wrong that is. Let's see if we can appeal to the priest of, of Neptune and see if he can find some other way for this debt to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And so oh, no. they go to the temple, they talk with the priest of Neptune. And this, this is kind of where like, you know, old storytelling is kind of anticlimactic to our storytelling. It ends up being a happy ending where Neptune's just like, I will let you live on condition that you are no longer king and that you make Edamante, who is clearly a better man than you, king. And Edamante is just like, done. I'll take it. I'll take the deal. That actually sounds pretty, uh, pretty sweet. Yeah. Because they don't and, rule anymore. You know? And Edamante and Elia get to have their happily ever after. And old Electra literally just gets left on the side of the stage, like furiously foaming at the mouth because she lost her love. Well, that is quite the story. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that that was that was pretty intense. I mean, it is four hours, like you said, but that's still a lot of material for a musical, especially. Yeah, operas were no joke. Yeah. Mu- Modern day musicals still don't quite have the uh, the the draw on old style opera as far as just pure substance. Right, for the most part, they're they're kind of focused on the on the cool costumes. Mm-hmm. At least the high school musicals, you know. Yeah, <laughs> the high high school musical definitely has nothing on opera. Well, I mean, like musicals you'd perform at a high school but yeah high school musical neither no i was that's what i was talking about oh, okay <laughs> you're talking about the disney channel thing okay well well that too obvious that that should be without saying more more ambiguation oh yeah. boy let's just let's just go to the music yes we're gonna take a break here when we come back we're gonna talk about the six songs that we have selected from e domineo that we're going to talk about so stay tuned We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We just spent a very long time talking about the classical opera, especially the opera seria, the Idomeneo? Idomeneo. 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 Um, Mozart's first masterwork opera, and this also serves as our first Mozart opera, our first Mozart episode. Not, I was going to say our first Mozart opera, which it also is our first Mozart opera. That's a lot of wordplay there. There's a lot of things going on in this episode. It's also yeah. our music history. It's just there's a lot of things happening um, that we talked about in our uh, first segment. So thanks for listening to that whole thing. And now it's actually time to get to the six and actually I believe we have seven songs. In this yeah, episode. but two of them I combined into one. Okay. So usually if, if you're um, a, a listener of this podcast, you hear us talk about how we have six songs to um, better exemplify the things that we're talking about in the episode. And that is still the case here. We have in the description of every single episode, there is a link to a Spotify playlist that has all of the songs from every single episode. And it has the songs from this episode. So we encourage you to go listen to those alongside this episode. 
Um, you definitely won't get the same type of experience as someone who does if you don't listen to those songs. And maybe in that list, you'll see some songs that you're interested about and are artists that you're interested about. And we have an episode on that song, on that artist. So definitely go check that out. Definitely listen to the songs. Um, and without further ado, right, there is no place to start better than at the beginning. Yes. I assume this is the beginning. Yes, it is. This <laughs> is the overture. Anytime you see overture, it's going to be the beginning. The, the little uh, the names of the actual songs gets real truncated on the um, desktop Spotify. Yeah, you got you to gotta let it scroll by to see the whole thing. Yes. I'm actually going to be relying to you on that because I cannot see at all on my phone. I, I can't hell? see it on my computer. <laughs> well, then... It... I mean, really, these aren't the official names of the songs. It's just literally, it's like with uh, Lorfeo, it's whatever the first sentence is. What do, what do you mean? Like, were there official names? I mean, yeah, but just lost, because that was the only... Time, or... Like, they wouldn't pick out, like, what's the coolest catch... Because, again, like, these songs were not ever meant to really be separated from the opera... There was no point in naming them. It was just, usually if there was ever a name, it was Aria 1, Aria 2, Chorus 2, Trio 1. Just mm -hmm. like what order it came in in the opera. Mm -hmm. That was the most important name to know it by in that time. Mm -hmm. We only give them these names afterward just because there are going to be times where we'll hear them outside of the opera. But that was never really done back in the day. Mm-hmm. So, so, yes, the overture. We, this is where we're going to start. We obviously have the instrumental nature of it, right? One of the few instrumentals of the opera. Mm -hmm. Which is crazy. Only... About four hours of music, there's a lot of singing. Yeah. Now, there are, within these songs, there are instrumental transition moments, but they're never yes. elongated. Yeah, this is a four and a half minute piece here. And yes. I guess this goes through all of the main themes that we're going to hear. Yes, it's not as it's not going to be as um, as involved as say like uh, you know like a what we would think of now of like what a prog band would use as an overture where it's going to be like every elite motif which is like this this is this exact melody and then here's this exact melody and it's going to tie in here and tie in there it's this overture is more of a thematic overture. You're going to hear kind of the basic themes that are going to be expanded and developed as time goes on. Ooh. It's not necessarily going to be a, you could copy and paste this here and it's the exact same thing as in this later part of the part. Hey, I mean, that's still kind of cool though, because then as you play a song, you'll, you'll say, Ooh, I kind of remember, or remember that from earlier. So yeah, it's going to, what it's going to do is it's less going to be a, aha, I heard that melody in the overture and more of a, this all feels familiar. This all feels like it belongs together. Kind of some psychology going on. Mm -hmm. That's, that's kind of cool. Now, a lot of the stuff, and I know you're about to transition probably at some point to the music. Um, but a lot of it is very based off of that, uh, major triad um, very big very epic very triumphant um, mm -hmm. lots of horns lots of strings right these very bright sounding instruments um, so for being a serious opera kind of weird to my ears 
I don't think of this as being very serious, but you know, why not start something that is a masterpiece in such a grand way? Right. Oh yeah. And, and little, little rhythmic, um, uh, motifs that are throughout this kind of in the way that Beethoven's fifth is it's almost um fugue-like in the fact that there's kind of these moving um moving little melodies and the Mozart song that we actually talked about in our last episode did the same thing so I'm not surprised that that's the case here yeah so the cool thing about Mozart and his overtures is that um he usually wrote the overture the day before or the day of the opening night how do you get your musicians to to do that? Because at that point, the, the the musicianship has risen to such a point that they can like pretty much sight read. Okay. And just because he usually, he didn't know what kind of overture he would want to do until the music was complete. And not only complete, but once he sees it being acted out in rehearsal, that's kind of when he puts it all together and goes, okay, I think now I know what the grand, if I were to distill this entire opera into an instrumental four minutes, what does it sound like? That's so it's not like... Unorthodox. I feel like a lot of other people would write the overture first so they can figure out what they want all of their musical ideas to be. No, I definitely and, thought about that, yeah. And in this sense, he writes the rest of the music first and then goes back and, and goes, okay, now let's let's come up with something that kind of sums the whole thing up. I think that actually kind of makes more sense. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty crazy thing that he would wait until that last minute. Because again, it wasn't enough for him to hear the whole thing finish, but he wanted to see the whole thing as well and figure out kind of exactly in all its detail, what kind of opera he was dealing with. Well, he wanted the best, you know. And he was also of the great musical mind that he could write an incredible overture in such a short amount of time. (laughs) Yeah, that's true, too. By the way, I didn't even mention this earlier, but he only wrote this entire opera in six weeks. Wow. Man, can... Can a modern band put out four albums in six weeks? Some of them can't even put out four albums in six years. Yeah. <laughs> but not only that, but he, he wrote everything. He had to write it all down for every instrument. That's true, too. It's an, it's an incredible achievement. Did he have helpers? Because, like, Bach had his kids. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, but still, like, as far as, like, he had to write out what every part was going to be. Like, it's not just he's... You know, with a band, usually you don't have one person writing out all the music for everyone to play. Usually you get the idea of the song, and then every per- member of the band's contributing their own idea to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, just everything came from Mozart. He knew exactly what the- every trumpet was going to do, every trombone, every violin, every harpsichord, every everything. Every vocalist. You'd have to think that that through the course of writing the opera, though, he would know kind of what sort of little diddlies he wanted to throw in there. Oh, I'm sure. Because, you know, there's got to be these constant 
musical ideas swimming through his head, and he's kind of picking it out and going, okay, this one's going to fit real good right here. Oh, true. But still, it's just, it's such a... I, I heard someone say that the equivalent of what other composers to write an opera of that scale would maybe take them a year. Wow. And he did it in six weeks. Wait, now, so he picks out a lot of these different themes. Are they necessarily like the most important themes or are they just themes? Again, I think it's it's not about picking out, I want this theme, I want this theme. He's He's really actually creating a summation of the feeling of the opera as a whole. I don't want you to think of this overture again, not the way that we would think of the 2112 overture where it's like they're taking this specific riff and putting it here uh, in, in dream theaters overture 1928. We're taking this specific melody and putting it here. And it's reminiscent of what's going to come on later. That's such a weird. Yeah. I can't even get myself out of the, out of the. It, don't think of it as prophecy and fulfillment. Okay. I'm not think of it, about it as prophecy. Think of it more as pattern. It's about it's about capturing the essence of the entire opera into a four minute instrumental. Because the whole point of it is not to go, oh, remember these melodies for later because they're going to come up. That's kind of more of a romantic approach to overtures. Hmm. Um, this is more of just again, like if you were to just the entire feeling of the opera into this opening thing what would it sound like but you'd still have to have little moments to do that yeah it, but it's okay. just it's not going to be as like sticking out as just going this this is one of the main melodies yeah okay so i just have to i have to completely retrain my brain i guess i know it's uh prog music has kind of ruined us in that way it's not it's not prog it's very um it's very, very formulaic compared to some of the music we've talked about in our history of music mm-hmm. theories. So, yeah, I mean, it's a good opening, nice and triumphant, lots of horns, lots of strings, lots of strong major melody. That's kind of what you want. And, and it's, it's just very Mozart. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very Mozart. So, like we were saying, you can still hear his unique voice. There's just there's certain ways that he puts different specifically these fast moving parts that are complicated yet simple mm-hmm. i don't it's 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 such a mozart a mozartian thing i'm going to invent that word mozartian mozart yeah to to take a fast complicated series of notes and make it not complicated it's mm-hmm. like the it's 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 exactly what Randy Rhodes did in his guitar solos, where he takes these these insanely fast groupings of notes, yet makes a very simple melodic through. Yeah, he was very good at that. Crazy Train solo is the best example I can I can. Put yeah, that. you could you could hum that solo without having to hit every single note that he's hitting. Yeah, and that's what Mozart did. I, I guarantee I guarantee that that's who he was looking to for inspiration. It started the whole neoclassical movement. Yep. Man, we we're going quite down the rabbit trail. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. So with that, I think we should go into our first song with some some story and some lyrics. Yes. So this is going to be an aria. There's only one person singing. 
Where I don't I don't believe that I picked any wretched to teeves. Oh. Um were they just want... not musically exciting or well also in compared to the arias, no. They are they are well done, but the arias are meant to be the the big moments. Interesting. But Mozart's Wretched Thieves were much better than his predecessors. Mm. But it's just, it's kind of also just kind of the the necessary evil of opera at that point. Not every not all four hours can be hooks. You kind of have to have those moments where even you're letting the instrumentalists take a break and kind of just let's have a harpsichord and some strings kind of just help modulate us from the key of this aria to the key of the next one. Hmm, yeah, good point. So now this song starts off with um, almost like this tortured sound. Yes. It sounds, it sounds very sad. So now let's, let's see if you can figure out now after our, our character introduction, who do you think is singing this? Electra. Electra. Yes. Oh, I'm so good. Oh, man. I basically this, know this opera like the back of my hand. So this is her first big song. This is still in Act 1. So these are uh, in order, I assume? On is our, what? On our list, these are on, in order? Yes, they are. Cool. Um, I did I did have to sacrifice a little bit of the uh, of the fluidity between songs yeah. and, and do it more of just focusing on, like, getting the big points of the opera. And getting, as well as getting some diversity in the types of songs that we're going to hear, mm-hmm. and as well as different characters and all that. Mm-hmm. So, at this point, Electra, this is her talking about how much she hates Elia. That would have been my guess. Let's let's go to the translation of this song Ooh. now. She's actually going to go through this. It's a short passage of words, but she's going to sing it multiple times. Oh, we got an and you and I situation. Yeah. In my heart, I feel you all. Furies of bitter Hades. Far from such fierce torment be love, pity, or mercy. Let her who stole that heart which betrayed mine feel my fury and cruel revenge. Huh. Yeah, she's not holding back at all on that one. Kind of intense. And, um... I actually, I actually got to watch a, um, a version of Idomeneo on YouTube with the translation. It was quite helpful. The actress and the version that I watched that played Electra, she looked pretty scary when she was singing this song. <laughs> and that's what sold me on, on it, it really helped me truly understand the, the, the anger that she's trying to portray. And that's when I was just like, okay, I got to make this my act one representation. Because this is just, this is just too good. I almost wonder if you might end up putting that in the description. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I maybe you know, if you'll remember. That yeah, is, that, that actually is the, that, that is that would be very helpful factor right there. Mm-hmm. So man, okay, so that's good. It, the music kind of gave across the point without, you know, me even knowing what the words were. Mm-hmm. So I can under I can understand the whole music being just as important thing now. Yes, and something that I had heard someone say was that 
the reason why Mozart is considered the greatest opera writer is because no one was as good at pairing the music with a particular character as Mozart was. Yeah. That he always knew how to perfectly characterize someone just with the music. But then you add the words on top of it and that's just icing. Well, it and it's consistent. Mm-hmm. Right. So this song itself kind of ends very abruptly on Spotify, so I guess it was a transition to another song. Yes. Um, throughout this whole uh, opera, it's not going to be a thing of a song ends and you wait for applause and then the next song starts. Pretty much the only time that the, the music really ends is when the act is done for the curtain to go down. I mean, it is it is continuous playing. That's why I really, I really didn't know quite what I was listening to until I got to actually watch it, and then I got a much better understanding of how everything was flowing together. Because I was listening on Spotify, and I was missing when the next song would start because I was waiting for the music to stop, and it never did. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I kind of felt myself doing that too as well when I was preparing for this mm-hmm. um, but in in this case in the transition to our next song we start from silence so it's rather obvious which is helpful yes more a bit more of a lull in the music although it's not I wouldn't say it's complete silence well com- compared to the, the frenzy that we end on well I mm-hmm. it's frenzy but the because the thing is in the actual opera after her um, Aria, it switches to a Domineo at sea in the middle of a storm. Oh. So, which is a great metaphorical connection because we have a storm of emotions and then we're transported to a literal storm. Wow. Just another story about a storm. <laughs> Shout out to our Phil Collins after hours episode. Ha 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 ha. Okay. Oh man. Okay. So with that, with that little thematic coolness, let's go. Let's go to. Is this our longest song on the set? Uh, I think so. Yeah, six and almost a half minutes. Man, though, I I have to say though, it goes by pretty quickly. Yeah. So I guess we're at Act Two now. So yes, we are. We've we've got quite of the way through the story at this point. Yeah, I would say about this point is like kind of the halfway. Act one is very long. It's a very long act. Oh wow! I think it's, I think it's the longest of the three acts. There's there's a lot that happens. So where, where in the story is the break? Um, so it the first act ends when Domineo realizes that his son is the person that he met on the beach. Wow! And so okay. act two begins in Indomineo's palace and it actually starts off with him talking with Elia mm-hmm. because Elia it's weird because she's his prisoner yet he treats her very kindly mm-hmm. like he's he's intending for her not to necessarily be a prisoner but to kind of just be I guess maybe a servant of his palace it's not really made very clear mm-hmm so is that what this song is about? Because I'm hearing a female voice. 
Yes. So this is Elia singing this aria. This is much more of a ballad. This is not the angry, tempestuous aria that we just heard. Mm-hmm. It's really a great comparison of the two mental states of these two leading female characters. There's there's some nice soft flutes in there. Mm-hmm. So this is Elia singing to Idomeneo. Mm-hmm. Pretty much this is after she has um, accepted within herself that she is in love with Idamante. She, the whole first act, she is fighting against it. And the scenes that they share together, he is pleading to her to love him, and she's saying, no, I despise you. You killed my countrymen. You have brought my father's house to ruins. But then, like, she'll turn to the to the crowd and go, but that face. Oh, can I resist that face? Wow. And so by... True true middle school love story. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Now by act two, she hasn't worked up the courage yet to tell Itamante that she loves him, but she is accepting now within her heart of hearts that she is happy. And because of that, her entire demeanor... And behavior has changed. Where once she was resentful to Idomeneo, now she's starting to treat him with kindness. Mm-hmm. So this is her song to Idomeneo. The translation is, I have lost my father, my country, and my peace of mind. You are now a father to me, and Crete is for me a blessed land to stay. Now I recall no more my anguish and distress now heaven has given me joy and contentment to compensate for my loss. She's saying that pretty much all the pain that she felt, it's okay now because I found love. And I'm going to enjoy living here because I get to live with Idamante. That's nice. That's it's... nice and completely relatable. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> You know, find, finding love after your entire country was decimated. Your father completely obliterated my people, but hey, you're kind of cute. So can, uh, can you understand now why soap opera uh, really, really pulls from this kind of storytelling? Yep. <laughs> yep. But, oh. you know, for the faults, the faults in this story, and there are faults, we can't put it Mozart, because Mozart's job is not to write the story, to write the words. He's writing yeah. the music, and boy, does he put some beautiful music to this moment. Right. It's so tender, it's so pure, um, it's the kind of operatic music that just, again, kind of just messes with your preset images of what opera music is mm-hmm. and it just because mo- again most people don't like opera because they're just like oh I hate this way that their voices sound but if they listen to a piece like this they hear the beauty in that technique mm-hmm. well yeah and, and the other thing too I mean you mentioned earlier how um, you know there would be some moments where it lets the instrumentalists kind of rest I mean I'm listening to it now. I'm about 75% of the way through, and it's it's kind of quiet right now as far as the instruments go. And really, um, it lets the uh, vocalist's voice kind of stand out. Mm-hmm. Nick is very apparent, right? But it's not it's not jarring. Maybe to somebody who 
uh, has never heard this technique before, who hasn't really followed us in the music history um, spinoff. Maybe this is kind of weird to you, uh, but it 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 lets that purity stand out. And from a thematic thematic standpoint, that's good. That's important. Um, and just from a practical standpoint, letting your you know instrumentalist that's good, right? But uh, it, it's it's it also highlights just the good technique that the vocalist is using. Mm-hmm. Um, so I imagine you have to have some really great casting for a part like this. Oh yeah, sing this song. So uh, this this must have been the time when humanity was at the top of their game vocally. To be yeah. This crazy thing this is that we still don't quite know what this would have really sounded like vocally back then. Because one of the things about arias is that there was actually back in that time a good deal of improvisation that would occur. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And so, you know, we we don't know what this aria sounded like on opening night. Who knows what she could have added to that part? It's crazy. So it's pretty cool. It kind of makes you want to want to go step back inside of your little blue police box and yeah, your go, go see for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, the thing that happens right after this scene is Idomineo by himself and him going, "Why is she being nice all of a sudden?" Mm-hmm. Oh no, could it be that she's falling in love with my son? Now I've got another terrible reason why I have to, or another uh, thing that's going to make it even harder for me to sacrifice my son because apparently he's in love. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's just, it, it's just a very thick story. Because in the, in the scene where. Idamante and Idamaneo are first meeting before they realize who each other are. Um, Idamante does tell him that he is uh, very much in love with someone, but he doesn't say who. Oh. Oh, so he kind of knows that there's a strong possibility. Mm -hmm. He says, there will be three victims for Neptune on the same altar. Son, father, and Elia. One pierced by the knife and two by grief. So is that our next song? No. So the next oh. song is, is going to be um, them trying to get on the boat. But don't they get on the boat? They just make it out of the harbor? and. Um, I believe that they don't even... The boat doesn't even leave the port. Like, oh. I'm not even sure if the boat, like, gets unmoored from its uh from where it's being docked so this is this is another aria uh this is a trio because remember arias are only for a single vocal oh right 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 this would be a trio this is idamante idamaneo and electra but it's not story propelling um no, not really. This is all them saying goodbye to each other and talking about how they're excited for the future. Or at least that's what Electra's saying. Because um, she's the Edamonte only one is saying, I will go, but my heart remains here. Edamonte's saying, um, you know, oh, what cruel destiny. I can't believe I'm having to make my son go away. This is your lot, my son. 
oh, my father, to part. Oh, my son. And Electra's saying, how great are my hopes. <laughs> Is that a direct translation? Yes. Those, that, those are the actual words. I'm not paraphrasing here. No. So this is this is the long goodbye. But yeah. it's it's still quite a peaceful and um and and lovely departing piece. Elia is not present. Elia is not in the scene at all. Huh. She remains she has a, no idea what's going on. She's oh. still back at Idomeneo's palace. Interesting. Okay. So um, the song that comes before this is I almost put the song that came before it on here because it's a beautiful aria by Electra. The only like nice, pretty moment that she gets in the whole opera, which is her talking about spending time alone with uh, him. Mm hmm. And it's 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 such a serene, calming piece of music. And then it, it leads into this of still serene and calm with a bit more excitement. But then it all of a sudden switches. Mm. And so the, the next song I'm combining is like one giant song. So I'm still talking about this song. Okay. Uh, just because I had to include this great sudden transition. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, everything's great. Oh, no, everything's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and the giant sea monster is a thing. Yes. So the chorus is coming through here and they're this is like the crew of the ship saying what new terror what horse roaring the god's fury has whipped up the sea neptune have mercy what hate what anger neptune shows us what is our sin that heaven rages who is the guilty one so pretty much it's a jonah situation they everyone on the ship immediately realizes that this is a divine storm because someone angered Neptune. <laughs> Jonah situation, yeah. Hmm. So I this this was a pretty daring thing to do in an opera to just have this sudden tonal shift, not just l- lyrically but musically. Like this is something probably a previous opera composer would have like had a break and then introduced this mad music. Mm-hmm. I, I use mad as in crazy, not mad as in angry. Although I guess that would technically be correct too. <laughs> um, yeah. But for but for Mozart to just go, okay, we're in it now. Let's go. Well, it's it's thematic. It is. It propels the story. The music is is got to do that, right? It is an opera. It is mm-hmm. a story. Follow. He's got to follow the rules. Yeah. Yeah, but this this is a little bit of rule breaking. Just a little, no, not Mozart breaking the <laughs> rules. Again, just a little bit, enough to where it's not going to like freak people out. Right. It's just going to make people go, "Huh, that was kind of cool." Yeah, to kind of go, "Oh, oh, what's happening here? Okay, I I I, I like this." Not not completely going into the avant-garde world. Yeah. It's not like he just suddenly switched to all of the violinists just smacking the sides of their violins with their bow sticks and the 
brass section playing in three different keys at the same time. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, it would be, but in the classical period, that would have people would have walked out. Their loss. Well, you're one of those people. I I like experimentation for the sake of experimentation. You know me. So you're a John Cage kind of guy. I don't know who that is. Well, then you're you're a poser. Maybe I do know who that is. Oh, is that the uh, four minutes thirty three seconds guy? Y- yep. <laughs> Oh yes, I am. I am a fan, and I don't like it, but I like the fact that he was just like, "Why not?" You know, we'll talk. At, we'll at, talk about those types of things. Yeah. Well, further point, down the line, at some point, you have to ask the question, "Why not?" And so, I guess there was maybe a little bit of that in this as well. Like, why not transition suddenly? It fits the theme, you know. Even though it's going to be kind of jarring, maybe they'll quote-unquote break the rules you know why not yeah so yeah and then of course we have that that point in the story when i guess Edomineo decides oh my gosh don't kill him please i'll find another way yeah so he gets he gets a a wretched to tease after that oh okay so then from that point on, right, we continue we continue the story, and then we pick up on our. I guess it's technically our fifth song. Yes. So Act Three. So really, this happens. This is the last thing that happens in Act Two. Oh, the last thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, and we 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 still have a, a little bit after that of Edomineo with his wretched Steve, and then right. another chorus comes in. But then after that, it it fades. And it's actually very interesting the way he ends that act. He ends with actually, instead of it ending with this big explosive crash, it actually ends with almost like a fade out. Which of course is a, is not a fade out because of studio trickery, but a fade out actually engineered by the, by the orchestra during the moment. They, they had someone with a slider that would change the volume of all the instruments. Yes. That's exactly (laughs) what happened. <laughs> yeah. So now this one on Spotify is the only one that doesn't start with Edomineo. Yeah, I'm I'm not quite sure. It really confused me. I I'm thinking maybe it was just a misprint when they were putting it on Spotify. Huh. But I I don't know why they did that. But this is a duet. Okay. This is between Edamante and Elia. Now, there's something I haven't talked about yet, and that is the nature of Edamante's role. So, when this was initially written, Edamante, even though it was a male character, was actually not played by a male singer. Well, actually, take that back. It was, but it is currently not performed by a male singer. Mm. Sometimes. I know I just made a very confusing statement. Yes. So I'm going to start off by explaining what a castrato is. Okay. Make it more Castrato is a man who at a very young age is castrated. Mm-hmm. So that way he has a permanently high voice. So that mm-hmm. way he could be a male soprano. Right. And the role of Edamante was written for a castrato. 
Okay. Because castrados were typically used for young, heroic men. Pretty much the only people that had deep voices in opera were either old men or villains. If mm-hmm. you wanted to have a hero, he had to be a high-voiced male. Mm-hmm. So is is that like transcribed an octave down now? So it can be done of one of two ways. Either you can... Uh, transcribe and have everything just an octave lower for a tenor to sing which is in this recording I decided I intentionally tried to find one where Edamante was performed by one just so it can be easier to tell when he's singing Mm -hmm. because whenever you're just listening especially in the scenes where you have Edamante, Elia and Electra together you really can't tell at all who's singing Mm mm-hmm it's just three high voices kind of battling for supremacy. It's a lot easier to do when you can see it. Because in the in the YouTube version that I watched of this, Edamonte is played by a woman and is singing in the original um, key that it was written for. Oh, wow. Or in the original octave. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So, and I just found overall that that was a very traditional rendering of the of Mozart's vision of Edamante or of Edamaneo Mm -hmm. but you can take a more um, I guess the modern approach would be to have a tenor sing Edamante's parts so you you could just have Sebastian Bach you know sing for Edamante (laughs) 80s Sebastian Bach maybe not 2021 Sebastian Bach I've I've heard some clips of some modern day true male sopranos singing. It's one of the freakiest things I've ever heard. Even Sebastian Bach has nothing. Even Freddie Mercury has nothing on the vocal range of some of these people. The the things that are required of them. A male soprano has to hit all the same notes that a female soprano can hit. And soprano is the highest vocal range for either a male or female. Right. These castrados could could hit the exact same highest notes that a female singer could. Oh, boy. And hit it effortlessly. Man. If only there was a way to do it without the procedure involved. Yeah, it was it was really quite an unfortunate thing because they they would do this when the children were like seven or eight years old. Mm-hmm. And they would just hope and pray that they ended up being a good singer. And most of them did not. Oh, that's rather that's kind of tragic. Yeah. That's kind of a, a, a big deal. Hmm. So, oh so yeah, that that's that's the uh, the history of the role of Edamante is as it was written for a castrato male soprano. In the future, it just started ended up being played by a female, and then even further down the line, they started going, "Well, why don't we just pitch down uh, Edamante's parts an octave lower so that a guy can actually sing this?" Smart. So if if I end up posting the uh the um, the link to the YouTube video in the description and you're mm-hmm. wondering why is a woman playing Edamonte's role, that's the reason why. 
you can you could a person can interpret it and do either one or two of two versions for the audio version i just thought it would be easier to tell what's going on if we have Edamonte in the tenor position rather than soprano hmm hmm interesting things yes back to the story back to the story yes so this is a duet this is the confession of love oh starts off with Edamonte. if i do not die at these words it is not true that love can kill and that joy oppresses the heart elia replies no more grief no more lamenting i will be constant and true to you you are my only treasure Edamonte. You shall be Elia as you desire me. Edamonte, my bride. Elia, will you be my bridegroom? They both together say, let love speak. Ah, our joy banishes the cruel torments we have suffered. Our love is all conquering. And then boom, Edamoneo and Electra come in and bust up the party. Oh, man. <laughs> well, okay. That's that is quite the confession of love, considering that uh, all that's happened. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because what the whole thing that sparks this is that the sea monster is actually still out there. Okay. And Edamonte has decided he's going to go kill it because he still doesn't know why it's there. He's just like, well, I'm not going to let it destroy this boat. So he's actually going to tell Elia, "Hey, I'm probably going to die." So I just want to tell you once and for all that I love you and that I hope to see you in the afterlife. And when she hears that he's going in somewhere and might not return because he might die, she's just like, wait, if you die, then I would never get the chance to tell you that I love you. <laughs> Very dramatic. Yes. And that's what causes this whole scene. Okay. Okay. So that makes sense. So given that, right... Now let's transition to our final song. Yes, this is the big ending. The big ending, the Act 3 ending. So what's happening here? So this is after Edamonte has been crowned the new king of Crete. And um, he has officially been betrothed to Elia. And Neptune has been made happy. All is right in the world. Edamoneo gives this big old speech. And... Finally, at the end, we have a chorus come in that says, Descend, love and hymen, descend June to the royal pair. Benign goddess, now instill the peace of your spirit in their breasts. Nice. So pretty much it's a, um, it's a, it's a coronation slash wedding slash celebration. Okay. So it's the, it's the end of Star Wars A New Hope, basically. Yeah. And return happy, Jedi. there's a lot of major triads. It kind of is a reflection of our overture. I mean, even if you look at at the way that the music is moving, it's actually the all of the in the overture, a lot of things were moving up. And here at the end, everything's moving down. Um, hmm. Which I didn't I didn't notice the first time listening through, but now I did. I hadn't noticed that. That's a good ear. And I, I won't say a lot of, I'm just saying a lot of what I'm picking up on. So there's a disclaimer there. Maybe somebody else listening is going to hear something completely different, but that's just what my ear is picking up on. And I could be completely wrong. And who's nitpicking every little detail involved is probably um, 
really screaming at their listening device right now and saying, oh my gosh, Grant, listen harder. So I don't know. Maybe, I maybe hope I'm someone maybe. comments someday, listen harder, Grant. <laughs> maybe. Maybe it'll happen. But yeah, it's a it's such a triumphant conclusion. I mean, again, I would say that I have some issues with just how conveniently, neatly the story wraps itself up. Yeah. But on a musical standpoint, you really couldn't ask for much better. Yeah, that's true because then you can have the nice coronation music and the nice wedding music and the nice everybody's happy and uh, Neptune isn't mad anymore music, right? Gotta keep Neptune happy. Right. Well, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna be an island country, you gotta keep the the god of the sea happy. Mm-hmm. But you ain't gonna get any imports here. Um, and and it's it's really weird that even though this is like a, a a opera seria or Syria or however it's pronounced. Opera seria. Opera seria. Um, it ends on a happy note because you were, you were talking about how, oh, it's a very serious opera. It's very dramatic. So I was thinking, you know, at every point in the story, oh, his son's actually going to die or you know, Neptune's going to say, okay, you can have someone in substitute and then he kills, you know, Elia or something, right? Well, again, we're we're kind of tainted by our modern interpretation of Sirius. True. It Sirius doesn't mean dark. It just means that there's it's it's going to be about serious topics and about serious people. Yes. Serious, but it, seriously um, sacrifice their children that they've never seen. But it doesn't mean that there's not going to be happiness, that there's not going to be love, that there's not going to be triumph over evil. It's not – opera doesn't mean nihilism. Okay. It's not a tragedy. No. But it is a drama. It's a drama. Drama okay. – yeah, drama and tragedy don't equal the same thing in this context. Okay. We tend to think of that more in kind of modern – terms like it's not a serious movie unless it's like there's no happiness at all no there there can be happiness it just has to be immediately snatched away <laughs> yeah <laughs> it has to be a false sense of security yes yes it does. okay well that I, I feel like this section was not as long as our first i mean our first section was very beefy yes um but we still got a lot out of this six songs I guess seven songs you know yeah that just tends to, be, tends to be the nature of our music history episodes yes which i think is actually great because we learn a lot about the, the actual history and the actual time period we're talking about which is kind of the whole point yes so we're going to take another break when we come back we're going to give our final thoughts about mozart e domineo and opera Syria. so stay tuned we'll be right back Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We just got finished talking about the six songs that we had picked from Mozart's E. Domineo. Um, I'm not going to try and go through the names of the songs because I'm going to probably butcher them. And I, I can't see what they are based on seeing them on my phone. But the way that you can see the songs and listen to them is to click on the link in the description of the episode that takes you to our Spotify playlist. 
where you can listen to not only these songs, but all the songs from our previous episodes. You should also listen to this opera as well. It's it's really does an injustice just listening to these parts. Um, there were so many other songs. I was just like, man, really wish I could put this in there, but I got to just do six or we're going to literally talk about this for hours and hours. So um, let's give our final thoughts. So Grant... How do you feel about Mozart as an opera writer and about classical opera in general? I can see I can see why people say that the opera was his his crowning um, genre, I should say, um, because there is a lot of the same musical themes that we hear, you know, that we associate with him. I should say in his symphonies and his concertos and all of the pop culture Mozart, right? Um, a lot of those same ideas, you know, those little rhythms that you would move um, across the scale and in a different mode and sound kind of different, that little trick that he'll use, it's really nice. Um, it's dotted all over his music. It's still dotted over this music here. And so it's very clearly Mozart, um, and it, it's very reminiscent of the type of music that we would hear. And it's nice that he's able to put out four hours of real quality masterwork music. And, you know, I haven't listened to the whole thing or thing. So um, maybe it's terrible and you're just talking a good game, but we'll have to see, I guess. I, I probably won't have the time to listen to four hours of music or watch the whole thing, but maybe the listeners will and be able to determine that for themselves. And maybe you'll find that you're a, a real appreciator of the classical opera. I mean, you never know until you give it a chance, right? Um, but it's, it's impressive that he's able to put out four hours of quality masterwork music that historians would say, this is really masterful. This is really significant to history. And he does it in six weeks. Right. And he writes the overture the night before. I mean, this is, this is the kind of stuff that, that it's, it's legendary, right? That's, those are the kind of stories like Black Sabbath's Paranoid, where they had extra time on the album, they had to write a song, and it happens to be one of their biggest songs, right? Or the Pour Some Sugar On Me, Def Leppard, where last minute they had to fill some time, and ends up being one of their biggest songs, right? That last minute, Mozart is writing the overtures for these operas, and they're the first thing that people hear. It's like, everybody's gonna base this opera, really, you know, among the first, or uh, based off of the first few minutes, really, psychologically, you know. Um, and he writes that last minute. I think it's very impressive. I think it's risky. I think it's bold. I like it. I like his style. I respect the man. But it's also just, it's impressive. Um, and and really kind of flexing his musical muscles. And so I, I, I think that's kind of cool. I think that's a neat little tidbit that I'll throw around in some conversations in the next few weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, I like to do that. I, I like to, I like to flex my musical knowledge sometimes. Um, and I'm sure that's why a lot of people listen to the podcast, maybe so they can flex on their, uh, flex on their, uh, circle of acquaintances. Um, but yeah, so, and listening to the opera itself was kind of cool and to be able to pair because obviously as I was listening to it, I didn't know the, the lyrics. And so talking through what the story was and, and talking through what each song means was really, really cool. Um, and it really made a lot more sense. And it made me appreciate the fact that the music fit everything perfectly. You know, 
Uh, and I think it's very important when you write something that's as thematic as an opera. Um, obviously, we're used to that kind of thing in Prague. And so seeing that kind of thing um, in a completely different genre um, was really eye-opening, I should say. Um, now, that's not to say that I'm going to go out and listen to uh, this opera, you know, from my personal time. I don't know if I would have the time, but... Um, you should. I, I do appreciate it. I do. I'm not gonna say. I'm not gonna say I don't like it, because I did like it. I did like it, and I wish I could have spent more time listening to it these um, past week. But um, just from you know, we got we got lots of music out there to listen to. We got lots of music out there to to share with the listeners. So you've already I'm, got. I'm really excited ready to go. Week. I'm really excited for next week. All right. Well, that was, that was quite the final statement there. It was just it was just a lot of thoughts floating around my head. Um, man, I cannot even express to you how much research I had to do for this episode. It was it was quite at times the brain overload, and I and I started to wonder at certain times, am I going to actually be ready for this episode? Um, but. I'm really happy that I did. Opera is continuing to grow for me. And I'm excited that I'm not done yet with Mozart. That we're going to have another episode of his to do. That I'm going to really, really excited to delve deeper into the opera we're going to be talking about next month. I think that it has the ability to maybe be the coolest thing that we've listened to so far in the music history series from the little bit that I've heard so far. And um, Mozart is just continuing to impress me. I mean, it almost, that seems like a, like a, a dumb, obvious statement, but I feel like there is so much about Mozart that really we don't know. And a lot of his music that we don't know or subconsciously know, but don't know that it's him. And we certainly really don't have a grasp on the why. Why was Mozart so great? Why is Mozart the one that we always return to and say, this is the epitome of musical genius? We call people a Mozart when they're, um, when they're gifted beyond uh, explanation in music. Mm. Why is that so? I feel like I'm finally starting to pull back the layers. It's not just because he was really talented. It's not just because he was a great instrumentalist. It's so much more than that. And it's been a, it's been a great journey learning about him. And I'm glad that I'm not done yet. So we'll pick this back up part two coming last week of October. So make sure that if you liked that episode, you tune in for that one and thank you so much for listening um next week we have uh we're starting a brand new month which means it's another volume two and oh boy boy. i've been waiting to do this one it's it is it is now the right time we're going to be talking about a specific album which i always like when we do that because it just gives us a very specific thing to kind of just hone in on oh yeah so um, you're not going to want to miss that. No, you're not. We're going to talk about really one of the greatest comeback stories in music. So, so we get a, we get a nice little story aspect to it as well. 
Oh, yeah. Kind of like well, an opera. It's going to be some great story. So make sure you tune in next week. Hit that subscribe button so that way you know when new episodes are available. We have new episodes every single week. I'm finding out more and more in the podcasting world how rare that is. So you guys are lucky that we put in the amount of work to give you guys new episodes every week. Now, I'm, you, I'm, we're really grateful for you guys to continue to tune in. We're looking um, to have you guys listen is what he's yes, trying to say. <laughs> yes. I was being facetious there a little bit. But, um, yeah, it's, I'm finding it's not often that channels do um, episodes every week. So um, thank you guys for giving us the support to allow us to be able to continuously give you guys new content. Um, make sure to follow us on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. That's where we get the discussion, where we can reach out to you guys and you can reach out to us. And we want to know what artists you guys want us to cover next. So make sure that you follow us on social media. We would love to hear from you guys. And make sure that you check out both links in the description of the episode. I already talked about the Spotify one, but the other one takes you to our Patreon page where we have episodes available for you guys early every Friday before the Monday that they come out, as well as our segment on the bad music podcast fortunately on our music history episodes we don't have that segment for you but don't worry next week we will have one with the corresponding episode and that's it i'm lucas i'm grant keep on listening to good music good music